Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 3rd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight's going to be our final presentation of Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians. And all we'll have left is Hebrews two epistles to Timothy and Titus. So we're nearing the end of our presentations of Paul's epistles. I believe this will be number 96 in the series. I never imagined it would be anywhere near that many podcasts, but it is. It's like I'm making a career out of Paul of Tarsus. That's the way it feels, but that's okay. When this finishes, hopefully we'll do a presentation of Zechariah, the minor prophet. And then when we're finished with Hebrews, we plan to do a presentation of Malachi. After that, we will focus on the writings of John in the New Testament. Yahweh, God be willing. This is Paul's... This is part three of our series on Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, and it's subtitled, The Faith is Not for All, and we will explain our reasoning for that translation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2 in depth. In his first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul had discussed the persecution of Christians by those Jews who stood in opposition to the gospel of Christ. In the last chapter of that epistle, he mentioned the promise of the ultimate destruction of those enemies of Christ. Here in this second epistle, Paul has elaborated on that very theme and has more accurately identified the nature of those enemies whom he had mentioned in the first letter as those who both killed Prince Yahshua and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh, and contrary to all men, as he had described them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul has explicitly stated, as he was writing this epistle, that apostasy had already come, that there was already a man of lawlessness, which he characterized as the son of destruction, operating in accordance with the operation of the adversary, or Satan. We know that this was Paul's intended meaning because, as we have explained at length, while he described these things, he had used present tense verbs, verbs which describe presently occurring phenomena, as well as aorist tense verbs describing actions which were already initiated relative to that presently occurring phenomena, which he described with present tense verbs. The grammar of Paul's statements do not permit one to imagine that the men and actions which he had described would not materialize until some point far off in the future. Using present tense verbs, Paul was speaking of someone 
who already at his own time was opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. Present tense. Six verbs, five of them were present tense verbs. We believe that Paul was speaking collectively, and he could only have been speaking of the Edomite Jewish Sadducees, who were the high priests and rulers of his time. For it is they, and nobody else, who were sitting in the temple of Yahweh and imagining for themselves to be above even God. For that very same reason Christ himself had warned in the revelation of those saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We will substantiate why we believe Paul was speaking collectively, as we had mentioned while presenting that first part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The enemies of Christ were described as the prince of this world by Christ himself in the gospel, where he was speaking collectively, as they were described as the princes of this world, by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There, where he said that he was right, I'm sorry, there, where he was actually writing several years later than this epistle to the Thessalonians. Paul had said, Now we speak wisdom among the accomplished, but wisdom not of this age, nor of those governing this age, who are being done away with. Rather, we speak wisdom of Yahweh, that had been hidden in a mystery, which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor, which not one of the governors of this age has known. Since if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor. Seeing that Paul used plural terms here, such as princes of this world and governors of this age, we see that he must have been speaking collectively, where here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he spoke of the same people as that which now prevails, and he prevailing only presently. Understanding this, where Paul had explained to the Corinthians that the governors of this age are being done away with, we see that here in this chapter, where Paul says in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, the governors of this age, he prevailing only presently until he should be taken out of the way, that Paul must have been speaking of those same governors of this age who were seated in the temple of God, imagining themselves to be above God. This is the same devil who in Luke chapter 4 had claimed to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. These are the Edomite Jews who had opposed Christ. Paul can mean to refer to no one else in one, in 1 Corinthians, where he had written of the governors of this age who killed Christ.
And here, in 2 Thessalonians, he spoke of he prevailing only presently, who was opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. The certainty of the connection between Paul's statements here and what he said in 1 Corinthians concerning the governors of this age is beyond rational dispute. It is of these sane people that Paul spoke of when, much later, he told the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, where he was speaking once again collectively of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. In our last presentation of this epistle to the Thessalonians, we left off where Paul, speaking of those same devils in Jerusalem, had said, whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, or Satan, in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood, and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing, because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. And because of this, Yahweh sends to them an operation of error for them to believe in that which is false, that all those should be judged who believing not in the truth, rather have satisfaction in unrighteousness. And of course this describes all of the enemies of Christ who lived their entire lives in deceit. But it also describes at least a portion of the people of God, those who have opportunity for repentance but will nevertheless not accept it. In this manner, in Romans chapter 9, Paul himself had also prayed for his brethren in Judea, his quote-unquote kinsmen according to the flesh, who had not yet accepted the gospel of Christ. Since Paul foresaw the impending doom upon Jerusalem that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, and which he had mentioned in Romans chapter 16, he feared that many of his own Israelite kinsmen would be slain along with the Edomite Jews in Jerusalem who were about to be punished likewise. In that same manner, Christians have a warning in Revelation chapter 18 to come out from mystery Babylon once it falls that they not suffer its punishments. It is inevitable that many Christian people kinsmen according to the flesh, as Paul had put it in reference to Jerusalem, will not heed the call, but would rather live the lies and reject the truth. This is prophesied by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins. Ostensibly being virgins, they must be qualified for the body of Christ. But in disregard of their duty, they had no oil for their lamps. Oil makes light, which represents knowledge gained from an acceptance of Christ and the truth of the gospel. So Christ had explained in Matthew chapter 25, at that time, the kingdom of the heaven shall be like ten virgins, who, taking their own lamps, went out for a meeting with the bridegroom. 
Now five of them were fools, and five wise. For the fools, taking their lamps, did not take for themselves oil. But the wise took oil in the vessels with their lamps. And with the bridegroom delaying, they all had gotten drowsy and slept. Then there came a cry at midnight, Behold the bridegroom, come for a meeting with him. Then all those virgins arose and prepared their own lamps. And the fool said to the wise, Give to us some of your oil, because our lamps are extinguished. But the wise replied, saying, Never, by no means would it be sufficient for us and for you. Rather, you must go to the dealers, the merchants, and buy it for yourselves. But upon their having departed to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready entered in with him to the wedding feast, and shut the door. Then later the rest of the virgins also came, saying, Master, Master, open for us. But responding, he said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you, or at least I do not acknowledge you, as the Greek word may also mean. Not having accepted the truth, we may find ourselves locked out of the body of Christ, and thereby suffering the judgments which are destined to come upon the world of the enemies of Christ. With this we shall proceed with our presentation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul temporarily leaves his discussion of the enemies of Christ to offer praise to Yahweh on behalf of the Thessalonian Christians. And he says in verse 13, Now we are obliged to give thanks to Yahweh at all times for you, brethren, beloved by the Prince, because Yahweh had chose you from the beginning for preservation in sanctification of spirit and belief of truth. Whether one wants to interpret from the beginning as the beginning of the gospel, or, as it is proper, the beginning of the history of Old Testament Israel is immaterial. All of the promises of the salvation of God, where it is explicitly mentioned in Scripture, were made exclusively to one race of nations, the children of Israel. Here Paul is writing to Thessalonians, who were also descended from Old Testament Israel, for which reason they were already chosen from the beginning. Even before the birth of Christ, the angel of Yahweh spoke to Joseph, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 1, where he speaks of Mary, from verse 21, And she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahshua, which means in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. For he shall save his people from their sins. Likewise, it gives a more detailed explanation of the same promise of a Messiah or Savior in Luke chapter 1, where Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is speaking even before the actual birth of Christ, just like the angel in Matthew was speaking before the birth of Christ. And he said, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people, and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us. 
to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him. On both occasions here in the gospel, in the beginning, preservation or salvation, as the word is often translated, is a promise made exclusively to the children of Israel. Here in Paul's epistles, as we have often explained, the governors of this world are not those chosen people, and those who rejected Christ in Judea are not those chosen people, but rather they are the very same enemies that the Gospel of Luke proclaims that Christians shall be saved from. The ancient children of Israel required two types of salvation, salvation from their sins, as it says in Matthew, and salvation from their enemies, as it says in Luke. The reasons for this necessity are found only in the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers chapter 33, where the children of Israel were told to exterminate all of the Canaanite races in the land of Canaan, we read from verse 55, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Pricks in one's eyes cause blindness. The rulers of this world, the blind leading the blind, the rulers of this world, of which Paul speaks earlier in this chapter, are in part descended from those same Canaanites of the book of Numbers. This ongoing problem was also addressed in the days of the prophets, as Malachi explains that Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. Likewise, long before Malachi, Ezekiel chapter 16 said of the inhabitants of Jerusalem in his own time, that thy birth and thy nativity, thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, and thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Likewise, around the same time that Ezekiel was prophesying, Yahweh, through Jeremiah the prophet, explained in Jeremiah chapter 2, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou said, I will not transgress, referring to the time of the Exodus. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, yet I planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. How can thou say, I am not polluted, I am not gone after Baalim? So the sin of race-mixing 
resulting in apostasy in the time of Jeremiah was tied directly to the warnings in the book of Numbers concerning those same Old Testament Canaanites over 800 years earlier, where it also said, a little later in the book of Judges, that because the Israelites failed to exterminate them, whereof, from Judges chapter 2 verse 3, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods, the Baalim that Israel had gone after, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. This is the mystery of iniquity, of which Paul speaks here, that apostasy which had already come because the children of Israel had followed the gods of the heathen, for which reason those who do not love the truth are deceived by Satan, by the enemies of God, who in Paul's time were sitting in the temple of God and imagining for themselves to be his gods, as the Edomites were also descended from those same Canaanites that many of the children of Judah had mingled with, for which they were slain. The survivors are called Jews today, although many of them are found among the other mixed so-called Arab races, which also originated in the Near East and on the Mediterranean shores. For this reason and more, that the enemies of Yahweh God have always been the princes of this world, and today's events and circumstances prove that beyond all doubt. For this reason and more, do the children of Israel require salvation from their enemies, as we read in Luke. And, as it is evident throughout the Old Testament scriptures, because so many of the children of Israel have followed the enemies of God, rather than following God, and that too is absolutely evident today, and they have chose to believe the lies of the Jews, they also require salvation from their sins, as we read in Matthew. Yet in spite of all the words of Christ, most Christians today still honor the Jews, rather than reading the gospel and seeing them for the devils that they truly are. The Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 52 is also exclusive to the children of Israel and is given for those very reasons. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall be no more come into thee, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Well, back in Isaiah's day, the Edomites and Canaanites were the uncircumcised and the unclean. But once they were converted to Judaism, 500 years after Isaiah, the Edomites and Canaanites became the circumcised, another trick of unrighteousness by the devil. And in Isaiah 52:2, Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, meaning that they sold themselves into sin, for nothing. They gained nothing from it. And you shall be redeemed without money. 
For thus saith Yahweh God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, referring to their first captivity, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, referring to their last captivity. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, those governors of this world, make them to howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually, when those governors of this world claim to be God's people, every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am him who does speak. Behold, it is I. And what did Christ say continually throughout his discourse with his opponents in the temple? He said, I am he. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good news, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigns. Here Paul continues after the same manner that Isaiah had preached in Isaiah 52. And he says, For which he also called you through our good message to the acquisition of the honor of our Prince Yahshua Christ. Christ had said that he came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 15. The nations to which Paul sent were these very same people. Therefore, speaking of Paul, Christ had told Hananias, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. This is in fulfillment of Isaiah, who was writing about Israel taken into captivity, Assyrian captivity, when he said in Isaiah chapter 41, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away the chosen, and called, who are promised salvation in the Old Testament, are the chosen, and called, to whom salvation is announced in the New Testament. The only difference between the Israelites of Isaiah and the Israelites of Paul is their location, and the names by which they are known, and the mercy offered to them by the cross of Christ. The change of location was prophesied in many places in Scripture, beginning with Genesis chapters 48 and 49, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and 2 Samuel 7.10. The change of name is evident in many places, such as Isaiah chapter 65, where it says, And ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for Yahweh God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. Speaking to the most reprehensible of the Israelites. So the name of the Jew and those who claim the name of Israel today are a people accursed unto Yahweh's true Israel who became Christians. Paul continues by exhorting the Thessalonians because they had been called. So then, brethren, 
you stand and hold fast the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our letter. Paul encourages his readers to cling steadfast to what they have been taught, to the traditions, meaning that these traditions which Paul is teaching from the Old Testament actually belong to these people who he's preaching to in the New. Otherwise, they're not their traditions. He encourages his readers to cling to these things, both to his writings in these epistles and to what he and the other apostles had told them in person. I should say both through his writings in these epistles. As where he was speaking of those enemies of God, he had said in verse 5 of this chapter, Do you not remember that yet being with you I had told these things to you? And here he continues with the prayer. Now, our prince, Yahshua Christ himself, verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Even Yahweh our Father, who has loved and given us eternal encouragement and good expectation by favor, or perhaps through favor, may he encourage your hearts, and may he establish you in every good deed and word. The eternal encouragement, which Paul speaks of here, can only refer to the promises made to Israel, which are found in the Old Testament prophets. The word for favor is usually translated in the King James Version as grace, as it is here. The eternal encouragement and good expectation come through grace, as it is here. In Jeremiah chapter 31, where the word of God discusses the captivities of Israel, and the New Testament is prophesied in that same chapter, we see the promise of such grace. At the same time, saith Yahweh, will I, from Jeremiah 31 verse 1, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, referring to the Israelites taken into captivity. Nobody else is going to be his people but those families of Israel who were taken out of ancient Palestine and never returned. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, eternal encouragement. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. This must be the same eternal encouragement, love of God, and grace promised to Israel, which Paul references here at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we shall proceed with the final chapter of this epistle. For what remains, brethren? Pray for us in order that the word of the prince may move quickly and be extolled, 
just as even with you. And as we have seen in Paul's other epistle, saying, for what remains, he is finished with the main purpose of his letter, and only wishes to clear up some odds and ends before giving his salutation. At the end of chapter 2, Paul offered a prayer for the Thessalonians, and now he requests a prayer from them. Here in that prayer, it is evident that Paul naturally wanted the gospel of Christ to spread throughout the nations of the dispersed Israelites and the Adamic Oikumene as rapidly as possible. He could not have imagined that the process would ultimately take a thousand years, which to a great extent was due to the persecutions of Christians by the Jews and by Roman pagans at the instigation of the Jews. That alone set the spread of the Christian message back 300 years. In that manner, Paul continues his prayer, and he says, And that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. The last clause of this verse which is perfectly consistent in all of the ancient manuscripts which are cited by the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece in both its 27th and 28th editions, is indisputably only five Greek words, five simple Greek words, ugar panton he pistis, ugar panton he Pistis. Two words appear in the translation of this phrase, found in the King James Version, which are not at all found in the original Greek. The first word is men, which is italicized in the King James, whereby the King James translators, by writing it in italics, by printing it in italics, admit that the word does not appear in the Greek. That's the purpose of words italicized in the King James Version. But the second word is the verb, have, which does not appear in the Greek, not in any manuscript, but which is not italicized in the King James Version. And it sure as hell should have been. There is no Greek verb in this phrase. If we read the King James Version without the added words, because they are not found in any ancient Greek manuscript, we read only, for all, not faith. And that certainly does not make any sense in English. So in order to explain our own translation of these five words, since the faith is not for all, we shall discuss the words in this phrase individually. The conjunction. Gar is primarily, according to Liddell and Scott, argumentative to introduce the reason for a statement which usually precedes. So Paul is telling us that the reason he needs protection from those disgusting and wicked men is because the faith is not for all. The other uses of the Conjunction gar, which Liddell and Scott list, are epexgetic or strengthening, 
but they do not fit the grammatical purpose or context here. Liddell and Scott also explain that in the Greek writing, gar is regularly placed after the first word of a sentence, although, of course, this is not the case in English. So gar here is rendered as sense, while it could also have been because. Gar is one of only a few words in Greek that were always written second in a sentence, even though in meaning they are first. That's, for whatever reason, a habit the Greeks had since the earliest times with certain of their conjunctions. They would always be written second in second place in a sentence or clause. And in English, they have to be given the first place. So the phrase in Greek reads ugar pantone hey pistis but that word gar while it appears second has to be given the first place in English the third word here in this Greek phrase pantone is the genitive plural of the word pace which basically means all or the whole the genitive case marks a relationship between two nouns, generally denoting something such as the source or possession of one noun from or by the other noun. Surely in this case it does not indicate source because we know where the faith comes from, so it must indicate possession. Now, like its English equivalent, all, the Greek word pace is also used as a collective pronoun, as it is in this clause. It could be the Greek, the English word all, and this corresponding Greek word could be, in any instance, an adjective, an adverb, or a collective pronoun. Here, it has to be a collective pronoun. Here in the Greek word order, and let me say something too about the genitive case. We don't have case in English. We don't, our nouns do not have case, and for that reason, we require a preposition, or in the case of the genitive case, we can require an apostrophe S at the end of the word, to represent the genitive case if the genitive case signifies possession. But aside from the apostrophe S, in English to represent the genitive case, we need a preposition like from or of. So we can't represent a genitive case noun in Greek as one word, unless we could represent it by adding an apostrophe S. If we can't do that, then we have to use a preposition and represent it as two words. You'll constantly, in any Greek translation, see that many genitive case nouns are represented with a corresponding English noun and a preposition for that reason. Here in the Greek word order, the particle u is the first word in the clause, the way it is written, but the way it is thought, it's really the second word, because gar is written second and should be the first word, right? That's the way Greek is. 
It is an unconditional negative, this word ooh, as opposed to the conditional negative may. So the faith is not for all without condition. The particle ooh negates the word which it precedes. Although in this case, gar is overlooked because while it stands second in the written sentence, it actually introduces the clause. So here, the negative, the unconditional negative particle ooh negates the word pantone, which is the genitive of all, the genitive of pace or pas. And pantone means of all. The final two words in this five-letter phrase, I'm sorry, five-word phrase are hey pistis, which is the faith. The noun pistis accompanied with the definite article hey, which is the feminine article, it's a feminine noun, are in the nominative case. And therefore, they certainly cannot be the object of any verb, as the King James Version translation attempts to make them here. If the faith were an object of any verb, only the accusative case, tain pistin, would have been appropriate. Since hapistis is nominative, the word with its article must represent the subject of the clause. This is a fundamental of Greek grammar which should be readily evident in any Greek grammar textbook. With this it should surely be clear that the King James Version rendering of the clause is absolutely untenable. Any valid rendering of this clause must represent Hapistis, or the faith, as the subject, and must also apply the, con the, the unconditional negative particle to the pronoun all. It must negate the pronoun all, because that's how Greek grammar works. The King James Version not only makes hapistis into the object of a non-existent verb, but it then applies the negative particle to the non-existent verb. So they dishonestly perverted Paul's original intention. They made up a verb and negated the verb. And that's just incredible. That's chicanery. But for our English language, it is necessary to add a verb in order to render this passage in a way that makes it readable. However, that does not mean we can pick a verb of our own choosing. Rather, there is only one Greek verb that is ever generally implied, and therefore it is not always written. There are actually many passages in the New Testament that require us to add this verb in one place or another. The verb is aimi, which means to be, of which is is a form, the third person singular form, it, he, or she is. 
The verb aini is unique among Greek verbs in that, quoting, quoting Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament in his entry for aini in part 6 on page 180, column B, Joseph Thayer said that the verb aini is unique among Greek verbs in that as in classical Greek, so also in the New Testament, aimi is very often omitted, meaning that the writer didn't write it. Esteen, meaning the third person singular form, most frequently of all the parts, of all the different forms of the verb. So that's the words of Joseph Thayer. The verb esteen is the third person present singular of aimi. It is, or simply is, depending on the context, because we don't always need the pronoun that's actually a part of the form of the verb. In English, it would often be redundant. Examples of this predicament are near at hand. If you open your King James Version Bible, you may see at 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 18. There are probably more. I stopped counting at 5. And in all of those places, we see the phrase, it is, or the word be, because be is also, be is the infinitive version, I believe, in English, of the same verb, I me. We see those in italics in the King James Version. So if you check those verses, you'll see that the the word it is, or that the phrase to be, is often necessarily added in to make sentences make sense in English. So where the English construction demands it, we may add the appropriate form of the verb aimi, or in this case, esteem, so that our translation is readable. But that does not give us license to change the subject of the sentence, to misapply the negative particle, and to add other verbs of our own choosing. That's what the King James translation did here. That is indefensible chicanery. It is not good translation. Period. There is no doubt about it. Therefore, an acceptably literal and technically correct translation of this phrase, ugar pantone hey pistis, is since the faith is not of all. And there is not much room to deviate from that. Translating the Christogenian New Testament, we interpreted Paul to mean that the faith did not belong to all. That's the plain and literal meaning, since the genitive case pantone indicates possession. And therefore we wrote, the faith is not for all rather than, the faith is not of all. And we have reason to do that, because that's a better way to say in English, in our modern idiom, that the faith does not belong 
to everybody, strangely to us, and we certainly did not expect it, even the modern Greek Bible, published in 1850, vindicates our translation 100%, where for this very clause, it has a much longer phrase, and they also added a verb, which I do not necessarily agree with. They use the phrase dot, which is a modern Greek word for because, and then they followed that with hepistis, which is the exact same way it appears in the Koine Greek of Paul's writing, the faith in the nominative case. And then they used a modern negative particle, den, because the faith is not. And then they added a verb, huparkai. And huparkai can mean to belong to. Dioti he pistis den huparkai means because the faith does not belong to. Ispantas, to all. The modern Greek translation, word for word, literally means because the faith does not belong to everyone or to all. The modern Greek Bible is a translation from ancient Klein Greek into a dialect that modern Greeks can understand. Just as we have a have a hard time understanding some of the early 17th century English of the King James Version, and there'll be more on that shortly. In this translation found in the modern Greek Bible, Hapistus is properly the subject of the clause. And because of the modern idiom, even they interpreted the genitive case Pantone exactly as we have rendered it in English here, as for everyone, using a preposition meaning either to or for, along with the accusative case form of the same word. So basically, in essence, it's very clear that the modern Greek Bible published in 1850 understood Paul's five-letter coin Greek phrase here in the exact same way that it's represented in our translation. Now, I don't expect them to verify all of my translations because the Orthodox Church is also heavily influenced by its own doctrines, just like the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church doctrines heavily influence their translations. But I was surprised and quite pleased to see us vindicated in this particular instance with a phrase that is so important, because Paul is certainly not saying that all men have not faith. Paul is absolutely saying that the faith is not for all men. For a digression, as if we need another digression. An example of my own poor understanding of 17th century English has just been brought to my attention by a dear friend from England who had listened to the recent presentation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.
There, we accuse the King James translators of mistranslating a verb, which can mean either prevail or withhold, as let in verse 7 of the chapter. But our friend has informed us that let in 17th century England was another way of saying withhold or hinder, the opposite of its modern meaning, which we certainly could never have imagined. So, saying let in verse 7, the King James translators were using what was more or less a synonym for the same word that they interpreted as withhold in verse 6. There is greater fault, however, with the modern commentators who also do not realize the change in the meaning of the word let over the centuries. In the context of Paul's epistle, we contend that both places, in both places, the verb should be prevail and not let hinder or withhold. But the modern commentators, the modern denominational churches have built up a doctrine around this word let in verse 7 which is based on modern understanding of the word and not the 17th century King James English. Now, we didn't understand it either, but we're not basing our assertions concerning Scripture on the English version at all. We just go to the Greek, so it doesn't really matter to us how these um, English words have changed in meaning over time because we go to directly to the coin Greek. So, that also illustrates the need to continually refer back to the Greek because these English words don't always mean what they meant in the 17th century. And there are plenty of examples of that in Scripture. So here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see Paul of Tarsus ask his readers on behalf of himself and Timothy and Silas to pray for us that, among other things, they would be protected from those disgusting and wicked men since the faith is not for all. We may have written that last clause as because the faith is not for everyone. It would have been even more explicit. Paul did not ask for prayers that these disgusting and wicked men be converted whereby he would no longer need protection from them. So evidently, they were not candidates for any repentance or conversion to Christianity by any means. Then Paul himself rules out any such thought where he says that he needs protection from them because the faith is not for all, as the phrase may be translated. Because the faith is not for all, this leads to two questions. The first one is that if the faith is not for these men, why is it not for them? And the second question is that if the faith is not for these men, then who is it for? Because these men, these are the rulers in the temple in Jerusalem. The reasons must be much greater than simply dismissing these men as sinners. 
since Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 2, that I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If these men were simply sinners, of course they would be candidates for conversion to Christianity. In fact, even Paul had written, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, in Romans chapter 3. And later in this epistle, he mentions avoiding unruly brethren, who are thereby distinguished from these disgusting and wicked men. In Romans chapter 9, where Paul had expressed concern for his kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, he also says, not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel, nor because they are offspring of Abraham, all children, but in Isaac will your offspring be called. Then Paul goes on to compare Jacob and Esau. And if we study Book 13 of Antiquities of the Judeans, by Flavius Josephus, we will learn that many Edomites were a part of Judea and practicing Judaism at this very time. From the time of the Edomite king Herod, they had also become the leaders and rulers of the nation. Seeing that, we can imagine why Paul described the Israelites as vessels of mercy as composed to the as compared to the Edomites as vessels of destruction later in that same chapter of Romans. Because those who opposed Christ in Judea were Edomites and not true Israelites, Christ had told them in John chapter eight, and we will read parts from verse verses thirty seven through forty seven, that I know that you are Abraham's seed because the children of Esau are technically descended from Abraham. But you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. If you were Abraham's children, because no bastard is really Abraham's son, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, which can only describe Cain. And Esau, marrying into the race of Canaanites, was marrying into a race of people who were mixed of the Kenites, the Kenite descendants of Cain, the Canaanites and the Kenites and the Rephaim and other bastard rejects all mingled together as it's stated in Genesis chapter 15. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. Then Christ told them in John chapter 10, I have spoken to you and you do not believe. The works which I do in the name of my Father, these things testify concerning me, but you do not believe 
because you are not my sheep. He never told them, as the denominational churches teach, that you are not my sheep because you do not believe. That's a lie. He told them, you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. The disgusting and wicked men whom Paul wanted protection from are not Israelites, so the faith is not for them. Rather, they are children of the devil, the father of all bastards. One aspect of the discourse of Christ in John chapter 8 represents precisely what Paul of Tarsus had explained in Galatians chapter 3, that there were several seeds of Abraham, referring to the various lines of Abraham's descendants, but that the promises were only passed on to one of those seeds, where he said, Now to Abraham the promises had been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed. Now, most interpreters insist that the anointed seed of Galatians 3.16 is a reference to Christ. But actually, it can only be a reference to Isaac, as Paul repeated the promise in Romans chapter 9, that in Isaac will your offspring be called, not in Christ. Out of the sons of Isaac, there were two vessels made from one lump, one for honor and one for dishonor, as Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 21, again comparing Jacob and Esau. The other seeds of Galatians 3.16 refer to the children of Keturah and Hagar, whom Paul makes an example of in Galatians chapter 4. In that same chapter, Galatians chapter 3, Paul also informs us that the heirs of the covenant are a plurality, referring to the seed of Jacob collectively. The disgusting and wicked men of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 must be the children of Esau, the descendants of the accursed bastards of the Old Testament and not of Israel, in spite of the fact that they claim to be of the seed of Abraham and even of Israel. They could not repent or be converted and therefore were not merely sinners of the people of Christ. Likewise, Paul said in Romans chapter 4, that therefore from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the seed, all of the offspring. So the seed must be more than one individual Christ. Not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Just as it is written, this is how, this is how Abraham became the father of us all, if indeed you're one of these people. Just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, and calls things not existing as existing, who contrary to expectation in expectation believed, if your ancestors existed at this time outside of Abraham, 
then you don't have a part of this promise because Paul's saying that these nations that Abraham's to be a father of did not exist at the time the promise was made. Who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, and here's how it happens. According to the declaration, thus your seed, thus your offspring will be. Seed only comes from one place. And if the promise is certain to all the offspring, which Paul defines as Abraham's seed in relation to the pregnancy of Sarah, then these disgusting and wicked men cannot be of Abraham's legitimate seed, or the promise is not certain to all the seed. If any of the seed are excluded, the promise is useless. If any of the seed are excluded, then Paul is a liar. Then God is a liar. There is no way that any of the seed are excluded. And it's basically simple. These men are not of the seed. These people that are sitting in a temple in Judea, claiming to be Jews, but are really the synagogue of Satan. When these promises were made to Abraham, none of the nations to which Paul had brought the gospel even existed, not in their forms that they existed when Paul brought them the gospel. None of them existed. Other people may have dwelt in some of those locations, but none of these nations existed. Not the Galatians, not the Dorian Greeks, not the Romans, none of them existed. The promise was made to Abraham circa 2000 BC. Rome wasn't founded until 750 BC. And it was, by all accounts, founded from the people that Ahenius had brought from Troy about 1150 BC, 850 years after the promise to Abraham. Thessalonica didn't exist until 17, 1800 years after the promise to Abraham. They all came into existence after the promise to Abraham, all of these nations to whom he brought the gospel, because they came from the seed of Abraham through the early dispersions of the children of Israel, which occurred as early as the time of the Exodus, perhaps 1450-1500 BC, and did not end those dispersions until after the Babylonian deportations, 580 BC which were over 600 years before Christ. When Paul wrote these words to the Romans, there were legitimate descendants of Abraham through Jacob in Judea, still in the law, and many more scattered throughout Europe, in the nations of his ministry and beyond, who had forsaken the law. So the promises aren't to those in the law only, but those of the faith of Abraham. What was the faith of Abraham? And here Paul defines that which is not for all, where he continues by saying of Abraham that he, not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body, by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, 
But at the promise of Yahweh he did not doubt in disbelief. Rather he was strengthened in the faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction that what he has promised he is also capable of doing. For reason also it was accounted to him for righteousness. Here it is evident that the faith is not what individuals believe that makes the promise certain to all the seed, to all of the offspring of Abraham through Jacob. Rather, it is what Abraham believed that made the promise certain to all of the seed or the offspring. What individuals believe does not matter. It is what Abraham believed which matters that his seed would become many nations, and the promises of God are made certain to all of those nations. It is those nations who are the object of the salvation of Christ, and there is no salvation or redemption in Christ promised to anyone outside of that covenant. The promises are irrelevant to outsiders. Men do not have a choice in the matter, as Christ also said in John chapter 15. Ye have not chosen me, you can't choose God, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. The remaining of the fruit is the fulfillment of the promise of preservation to Israel. Men can believe what they may, but that does not change the promises of God. As Christ also said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why do they work iniquity? Because they are not part of the covenant, but they are trying to lay hold of it. Those men, those men who are described as prophesying and casting out devils and doing other wonderful works in the name of Christ must certainly believe in Jesus. But that is not enough. Because the faith is not for all. And here Paul reinforces the assertion, where he says in verse 3, But trustworthy is the prince who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. Once again, there is no thought of converting the wicked. And they shall be distinguished from mere sinners, as Paul continues with his closing thoughts in his chapter. Paul continues to encourage the Thessalonians in verse 4. And we are persuaded by the prince concerning you that the things which we have instructed you are doing and you will do. Now that verb, paragello, is basically to transmit a message and not necessarily to command as the King James Version has it here. It may even be to encourage or exhort. Here it is more appropriately to instruct. The same verb appears in verses 6, 10, and 12 here in this chapter. 
Paul would not rule over the faith of his readers as he had written to the Corinthians. And he says in verse 5, Now the prince is to keep your heart straight in the love of Yahweh and in the endurance of the anointed. And that's exactly right. We have to rely on God to keep our hearts straight. We can't do it ourselves. The Christian hope is that Yahweh God himself may keep one from sin, which is the only way a man can truly abstain from sin. Christ told the apostles at Gethsemane, the garden, on the night of his arrest, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. This very thing which Paul describes here was promised to the children of Israel in a messianic prophecy which also foresaw the scattering of Israel, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we'll read about half a dozen verses till we get to our appropriate point. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, the blessings when they were obedient, and the curses when they were disobedient, which I have set before thee. And thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, as we are doing right now. And shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice, according to all that I command thee to stay. Thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from there will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So it is Yahweh God himself, who turns the hearts of men and permits them to love him. And this is done through Christ, as Paul has informed us here. There are plenty of men who claim to love God, who claim to believe Jesus, but can't possibly keep his commandments. And in fact, if a bastard, if a bastard really believed Jesus, he'd go jump in a lake of fire one way or another and volunteer to do it. If a bastard really loved God, he'd kill himself. He'd off himself in a second. That's my opinion. That's the only way a bastard can show his love for God is to be willing to keep God's law and judgment starts at home. In my humble opinion. Verse 6. And we instruct you, brethren, in the name of our Prince Yahshua Christ, you are to avoid every brother conducting himself in a disorderly manner, and not in accordance with the tradition 
which they have received from us. Now, there are several variations of this text, and the majority text which the King James Version follows has, which he has received from us. The Codex Vaticanus has, which you would receive from us. We have followed the Codex Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus. Brethren acting in a disorderly manner are distinguished from those disgusting and wicked men. So those disgusting and wicked men aren't mere sinners. These brethren acting in a disorderly manner are described as having heard the gospel and ostensibly have an opportunity for repentance. But those disgusting and wicked men are not extended any opportunity to be brethren or to receive anything from the apostles. There's three groups of people in the world. Not two, not one, there's three. There's disobedient brethren, there's Christians, and there's disgusting and wicked men. And if you're not a child of the children of Israel through the seed of Jacob, you can only fall into the category of disgusting and wicked men. There's no third that there's no fourth, fifth, and sixth parts. I'm sorry, they're not found in Scripture. There's disobedient Israelites, there's obedient Israelites, and there's disgusting and wicked men and women. Paul does not pray that Yahshua bring those disgusting and wicked men into the love of God. But rather he only prays that he and his companions are protected from them, giving them no opportunity to even hear the gospel. That can only be because the faith is not for all. On the other hand, unruly brethren are not excluded from the faith, but they are only to be avoided so long as they are unruly. In this regard, Paul continues his admonition in verse 7. For you yourselves know how it is necessary to imitate us, because that's the preservation of our race. Seeing that we have not been disorderly among you, nor did we eat bread from anyone freely, but in labor and hardship, working night and day, by which not to be burdensome to any of you. Not that we have not authority, but that we ourselves would give to you a model by which to imitate us. Paul shows his sincerity in his conduct and wants to demonstrate that to the Thessalonians as he closes this epistle. Paul expected his own conduct among the various assemblies which he visited to be a model for all Christians. He worked with his hands, and even though the gospel gives its teachers the authority to live off their students, he chose to work in spite of that authority, as we also see during his ministry in Corinth, as it is described in Acts chapter 18. Paul and Apollos were tent makers, plying their trade as they awaited opportunities to preach the gospel. And while later in his ministry, Paul was supported by others, as he admitted in his epistles to the Corinthians, here he attests that those who wish to do nothing should not expect to be fed freely, where he next says, Also, when we were with you, this we instructed you, that if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. 
Christian communion is not for freeloaders. Everyone who wishes to eat in a Christian community must also work to the degree that his ability enables him to work. Christian community is not Jewish Marxism, which is the essence of modern communism. And Paul continues by saying, For we hear that some among you are conducting themselves in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but rather, and this is important, this is an important phrase right here, but rather meddling with others' affairs. Paul is not merely speaking, he's not merely speaking on a personal level here. Rather, he is speaking of the governance of a Christian community which he expects to grow exponentially. This is what professional priests as well as professional politicians do. They do not work for themselves and they spend their time meddling in others' affairs. So Paul offers his own ministry as a model for those who would aspire to be servants of God, that whenever they have the ability, they work with their hands and make an honest living, rather than seeking to rule over others, meddling with others' affairs. Those lawmakers that we have in all of our Christian states that sit there and write laws all day, all they're doing is meddling in the affairs of the common man and ruining him and burdening him and enslaving him. And it's the same thing with the priests in their parishes these last 2,000 years. So Paul's words are actually a repudiation of the later ecclesiastical governments of the organized denominations, starting with the Roman Catholic Church, most of whose officials have lived as parasites throughout all of these centuries. They make a career out of posturing. And he says in verse 12, Now to such we instruct and exhort by Prince Joshua Christ that working with silence their own bread they should eat. So Paul further admonishes those who seek to live from the labors of others without doing anything for themselves. Christianity gives no authority to political or ecclesiastical parasites in spite of the authority that teachers of the gospel are granted where Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But that doesn't give one license to be a political or ecclesiastical parasite, which is all we've had for 1,700 years. Paul continues to exhort and encourage the Thessalonians. But you, brethren, doing well, do not falter. And if anyone obeys not our word through this letter, make him known not to associate yourselves with him, that he may turn about. And the King James Version has ashamed here, rather than turn about. The critics of the Christogenian New Testament rather foolishly point to our treatment of this particular word as one of our faults. But the meaning of the Greek word entrepo is primarily to turn about, according to Liddell and Scott. After that definition, 
The ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Creek English Lexicon states that the word entrepo was used mostly metaphorically to make one turn about or put him to shame. So the word, which may be translated either way, is correctly translated here. We chose the literal expression to turn about because that is repentance. The object of Christian admonishment is not necessarily to shame a brother, but to bring a brother back into the fold. For this reason, the Apostle James wrote in the closing verses of his only surviving epistle, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know, that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Therefore, Paul concludes of the sinner that he hopes would repent and do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So contrary to those disgusting and wicked men, who have no share in the gospel or the body of Christ. Christians should pray that the unruly brethren of which Paul speaks do repent and should make every effort to facilitate their repentance. And Paul concludes, Now the Prince of Peace, I'm sorry, Now the Prince himself of peace may give that peace to you continually, in every way. The prince is with all of you. And some manuscripts have continually in every place, which may also be understood metaphorically to mean continually at every opportunity. As the Gospel announces in Luke chapter 2, peace upon the earth among approved men. But as it also says in Isaiah chapter 57, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. So Paul certainly does not petition for peace with those disgusting and wicked men, from whom he only seeks protection. That is because the faith is not for all, neither in Isaiah nor in Paul's epistles. As we saw in Galatians chapter 6, Paul's very bad eyesight forced him to write in very large letters. So his epistles were always penned by others, but it became a tradition for him to write his own final salutation. So he says here, This salutation of Paul by my own hand which is a sign in every letter. So I write, The favor of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, is with all of you. And some, some manuscripts add the word Amen to the end of the epistle. This concludes our presentation and commentary on Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. Yahweh willing, we shall return with the presentation of the prophet Zechariah, before offering a commentary on Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.